and I'm here this morning to talk to you about lust. Uh, <laughs> uh, you can't really see it here. I've chosen a picture from um, Dante's Purgatorio. It's the Gustav Doré um, illustration of the, the terrace of the lustful. Um, the reason for that will become clear. I'm going to tap Dante for a little help in uh, getting our way into the topic and, and the, uh, the vices and virtues in general. Um, but first, a note on why I'm here today talking to you about lust. Um, I, I want to clear up any suspicion that I might have signed up late for Sunday school and uh, kind of got stuck with this topic. That's not actually what happened. I did actually um, sign up for, for this one. And I, I just want to share a, a quote from a First Things article that kind of helps explain why. Uh, this was a couple years ago in, in First Things. Male sexual behavior, always a bit difficult to pin down in one place, is moving steadily now in a direction either free of partners or else devoid of long-term commitment to just one woman, aided at every turn by technology. Outside the church, the revolution runs uncontested, as, the, as account after account continues to reveal. Inside the church, we still seem to have trouble admitting that men are attracted to naked women. And it's that last sentence that, that kind of got me. That, that was kind of me as a teenager in an evangelical youth group. Um, we would muster enough courage to admit to one another that we struggled with lust, and there we said it, we're done, right? But we didn't ex explore what that struggle looked like. I mean, does that just mean you're attracted to naked women and you're ashamed of that? Or are you struggling with hardcore pornography? Are you sleeping with your girlfriend? You know, those kinds of levels of conversation weren't happening. And um, I think that that can, can still be a problem in the church. Um, I think that all souls, we do this a lot better. I, I had the privilege of taking part in the sex and dating retreat with the youth, with Andrew and, and Joy this year. And I can assure you that um, if you have kids in the youth program, they're in far better hands than I was at their age. Um, but nevertheless, it, it's, it's that desire to have that conversation, to have a more helpful conversation, to understand where natural and healthy sexual desire and attraction ends and lust begins that I think we, we can do better at in the church. So that's why I'm here. To begin with, um, I hope you'll pardon a business analogy. I spend over 40 hours a week in corporate America, and uh, we look at a lot of charts like this. And this is, uh, this is Gartner's magic quadrant. I'm, uh, our company is in the enterprise technology sector, contact center as a service. And Gartner's magic quadrant is really the authoritative index of, of who's who, uh, given a, a certain technology. Um, so I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but suffice it to say, as in all things business, up and to the right is where you want to be. Um, <laughs> Now, this is my company here, Teletech. As you can see, we've got, we've got some room to grow. We, uh, we're not doing so hot uh, next to our peers. Now, in fairness, last year was the first year we were plotted on the chart, so uh, we, we will hopefully do better this year. But um, I, I thought I would use this um, and tap Dante, as I mentioned, to, to help me kind of plot a magic quadrant of my own for our vices for the, the seven deadly sins here. And we'll get into kind of where I've plotted these things, but notice lust is as up and to the right as you get. And 
high schooler Joel would have looked at that and said, yep, you got that right. That's, that's the worst, right? That's as bad as it gets. But let's start filling out the picture a little bit. What is it that we're measuring? And according to Dante, it's love. As he writes, neither creator nor creature ever was without love. But love can err by choosing the wrong object or having too much or too little vigor. While it is turned toward the primal good or God, controlling the secondary as it should, it cannot be the cause of sinful pleasure. But when it twists toward evil or pursues the good with more or less zeal than it owes, what is made labors against its maker. Thus you can understand that love must be the seed in you of every virtue and of every act that deserves punishment. In the next canto, he writes, the soul, as it is created quick to love, is drawn by everything that pleases it as soon as pleasure stirs to action in it. So the soul enters into desire, which is a movement of the spirit that never rests until what it loves brings joy to it. Now, I don't know about you, but echoing in my ears right now is the oft-cited uh, Augustine quote, my heart is restless until it rests in thee. And the point here is that love is what powers what in us becomes either virtue or vice. It is not that the vices are some other thing that, that we engage in um, as opposed to the virtues. They are the virtues twisted and gone wrong. The same thing that powers them, powers the vices, powers the virtues in us, right? It all comes from that core of love. I am, therefore I want. It is baked into the nature of our being to be loving, desiring kinds of things. The problem is, as, as Dante said, when that goes off course. And it can go off course in a couple of ways. Um, continuing to, to fill out our magic quadrant here, we've got on the x-axis, we've got the object for our love going from the self to God. And on the y-axis, we have the vigor. Are we, is, is our love too little? It goes up to too much. So there are two ways your love can go off course. You can love the wrong things. And that's what's happening with pride, envy, and wrath. Those are ultimately a kind of self-love that manifests itself in really a desire for um, the downfall of your neighbor in some way. It's really a kind of, of hatred of neighbor. In wrath, because of what your neighbor has done. In envy, because of what your neighbor has. And in pride, because of who your neighbor is. You cannot bear to share dignity or worth with that person. You have to be better, right? So I put those along the middle there because it's not so much um, with the extremes too little or too much, but kind of you're loving the wrong sorts of things. You're loving yourself too much. Um, sloth, you're in the right direction, right? You're, you're really close to God, but you're lacking in vigor. You know the good to love, but you do not love it enough. And then we get to greed, 
gluttony, and lust. Money, food, and sex are all good things to want. There's nothing wrong with wanting those things. But you run into problems when you want them too much. Now, of course, the um, metaphor that Dante used was not the magic quadrant. Um, it was a mountain. And this is uh, an illustration of Dante's Mount Purgatory. And there you have the lustful at the very top. Now, this really would have surprised teenage Joel um, because, according to Dante, lust is the least of the vices. It's the closest to where you ought to be, symbolized in you know, the Garden of Eden, the earthly paradise at the very top. And I think this is a helpful picture of, of how to view the virtues and vices uh, in general, but certainly lust in particular. And I've got this quote from Augustine on the left that kind of uh, sums up what we're looking at. The person who lives a just and holy life is a person who has ordered his love so that he does not love what it is wrong to love, our misdirected loves at the bottom, or fail to love what should be loved, the slothful in the middle, <coughs> or love too much what should be loved less the excessive loves at the top. So what then is lust? As we've said, it is a kind of excess. According to St. Thomas Aquinas, sexual lust indeed, or indeed chiefly signifies a disorder by reason of excess regarding desires for sexual pleasures. He goes on to quote Augustine in The City of God, Sexual lust is not the sin of beautiful and pleasant bodies, but of souls wickedly loving bodily pleasures to the neglect of moderation, which makes us fit for things that are spiritually more beautiful and pleasant. So if it's, just, if it's a sin of excess, we want sex too much somehow, my mind immediately goes to too much of a good thing. <laughs> right? And we all know what this looks like in, in one way or another. But I want to suggest that it has a little bit more to do with loving a good thing too much. Now, why have I got Tom Brady up there? Well, because there's nothing wrong with wanting to win your football game, especially in the postseason when there's so much at stake. But there is something wrong with cheating to get there. Even if you would have won anyway, deflating footballs to give yourself a competitive advantage goes too far. You have loved a good thing too much. You have cheated. Now, cheating not only makes the game no longer fun to play, it renders the game meaningless at some level. If, if you remove the rules, you know, what, what are we doing here? But you also run the risk of hurting other people when you cheat. The problem with loving excessively is that it's, it's a kind of cheating. You, and, and, and on some level, you don't care or don't care enough that you might hurt another person because you have privileged your own good above all else. 
So when it comes to lust, I don't think that it really is so much of the too much of a good thing kind of excess. I think it's more the loving a good thing too much. It's not that you might want to experience sexual pleasure a whole lot, or that your appetite for, for sex exceeds that of another person. That could be indicative, indicative of a problem, but it isn't by itself um, wrong. It's rather that you privilege sex inappropriately above other goods. Your priorities are off, and you do not restrain your desire for sex when it is appropriate and right to do so. If we put it in theological languages, or language, um, you have made an idol of sexual fulfillment. And idolatry is certainly a kind of cheating. There's no mistake that the, one of the primary metaphors used in the Bible to describe Israel's idolatry is adultery. They have cheated on God. You are loving something else with the love that you owe God. And the fact of the matter is that when you cheat on God, just like when you cheat in other ways, people can get hurt. So how does lust hurt other people? We can think of many obvious ways. Um, certainly uh, marital infidelity, any kind of relationship um, cheating on one another causes your partner harm. It hurts them, right? But I want to suggest that it also works on a more subtle level. It begins to change the way we look at each other. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, we can't really see it very well, but um, I found this ad on the internet uh, and it took me a while to figure out what we were looking at. Um, but it's actually, those are golf clubs. It's a golf ad. And somebody's written a commentary on it. Um, the only way our company can sell golf clubs is by tricking people into thinking we are selling a woman's body. Now, we don't have to go very far to see something like this and worse in our, in our society. Um, of course, what I'm talking about is objectification. And I, I thought this t-shirt was also uh, a very good image of, of what, we're, what we're dealing with here. Um, you've got the, the ubiquitous barcode, the symbol for a good bought and sold, right? That if, if it's got a barcode on it, I'm buying it because I want it, it's going to serve some need, and when I'm done with it, I'm throwing it away, right? And Lust, when we begin to privilege our own sexual fulfillment above the good of others, above other goods that ought to take precedent, we begin to objectify the objects of our sexual desire and treat them the same way. And this, of course, is where we're, we're all probably thinking about pornography. And I wanted to share these, these charts. Um, this is from Relationships in America survey on how much pornography are Americans consuming from 2014. Um, this is by religious affiliation, people having viewed pornography in the last week and attended church 
three times or more per month. As you can see, we evangelical Protestants um, are not immune to this problem. And the, you can't see the bottom there, but uh, the red bars are women and the gold bars are men. So clearly, um, it's not something that uh, women are totally immune to, but it by far affects men more than women. Um, and again, another view, percentage using porn in the last week by religious service attendance across the board. So weekly, we're still over a quarter of the respondents. Now, my, my, I, I hope and pray all souls is an outlier. We're not going to do a show of hands to kind of test this theory. Um, but my point here is that I think that um, it's a safe bet that, that pornography affects us here as well. Um, which kind of begs the question, what's so bad about porn? Um, I suppose that it's easy to let porn slide, even among churchgoers, because it seems relatively innocuous uh, when compared to, say, actually having sex with um, someone you're not married to. But I'm not so sure it is a victimless crime. You can begin with the people involved in making pornography, the actors, the actresses, producers, directors, and you could argue that they signed up for it. They're getting paid. They want to do this. But can you really say that the desire to produce films like this comes from a healthy, virtuous soul? Isn't the fact that they're already participating in this industry evidence that they've been hurt somehow along the way, that their soul has been damaged in its formation, possibly actually abused? But I want to remember again what we said about objectification. It changes the way we look at one another. It first affects and hurts us. And only then, based on what it has done to us, do we then begin to hurt others in the way we treat them because of it. It encourages us to view our neighbors as less than human, and then we begin to treat them as such. Just Friday, we learned of a tape in which Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump can be heard bragging about sexually assaulting numerous women. The acts, the acts he boasts of in those tapes are horrifying, and I'm not going to repeat them here, but they make my point. Donald Trump was not viewing those women as human beings. To him, they were merely there to exploit for his sexual desires at the time, for his own sexual whims. And he thought that because of his placement in society, he was particularly immune to censure on this point. When you're a star, he says, they let you do it. You can do anything. And I think this illustrates the danger of porn and what it can lead to when I say that it changes you. I don't know the degree to which Donald Trump has consumed pornography or how much, but it's, it's that kind of attitude toward women, toward other people, and that entitled sense 
that I think consuming pornographic material starts to erode your soul to normalize. And the problem is Trump isn't exactly an outlier on this point. He's getting a lot of attention because he's running for, for president, but this kind of thing is just sort of in the culture. Um, it's something I certainly observe in, in the business world on a regular basis, if not actual acts of uh, sexual assault, certainly um, language that undergirds the same sorts of attitudes. Um, and it's only been aided and abetted by, by the technological advancements in the, in, the, in the recent decades. You know, we have no further to go than these devices we carry around in our pockets for a portal to consuming this kind of material. I want to share a couple quotes by the late writer David Foster Wallace. Um, these are from a piece he did for Premier Magazine in 1998. He was covering the Adult Video Network's annual awards show. It's kind of the, the porn Oscars, if you will. And the piece is almost prophetic in the way it identifies twin trends that were beginning to emerge 20 years ago, but that are even more apparent now. Um, in describing a particularly bracing genre of porn, he writes, these movies are not for men who want to be aroused and maybe masturbate. They are for men who have problems with women and want to see them humiliated. These movies are vile. They are meant to be. And the truth is that in-your-face vileness is part of the schizoid direction porn's been moving in. For just as adult entertainment has become more mainstream, it has become also more extreme. In nearly all the hetero porn now, there is a new emphasis on anal sex, painful penetration, degrading tableau, and the at least psychological abuse of women. The thing to recognize is that the adult industry's new respectability, that becoming more mainstream, creates a paradox. The more acceptable in modern culture it becomes, the farther porn will have to go in order to preserve the sense of unacceptability that is so essential to its appeal. That was almost 20 years ago, and I think the, the situation has just gotten worse in terms of the sort of weird fringes that um, pornography is, is pushing to, to remain slightly edgy, slightly um, taboo, to, to continue to, to uh, hold its appeal and drive forward. And I think for those who consume it, it continues to push in this direction. Um, that is unhealthy for them and unhealthy for uh, the way they view others and treat others. Uh, in 98, it was a $4 billion industry. It, it's very difficult to estimate what it is today uh, because so there again, the technology has made it so wildly, widely available and easy to produce that it's not clear that you can pinpoint um, good numbers on, on um, it being bought and sold since so much of it is distributed either freely or pirated. But in 98, it was a $4 billion industry with 8,000 new releases a year. And to the question, why is, the adult, why is adult video so popular in this country, one industry journalist wrote, it's the new Barnum. Nobody ever goes broke overestimating the rage and misogyny of the average American male. And I, I, I want to suggest that it creates 
that angry, misogynistic male as much as it caters to that male. But I want to return to Dante, because when Dante put lust at the top of Mount Purgatory, I don't think he had pornography in mind. It's not that pornography didn't exist, but it certainly wasn't as widespread. And what he's describing was presumably people having sex with one another when they ought not to have. That's who his lustful are at, at the top of the mountain. They did not restrain their lustful urges, and that's, that's the sin they're paying for in purgatory. But in that context, you at least have a relationship with another human being. Presumably, there's some care between the two people, maybe even love. But what pornography does is it removes that human element. And I want to suggest that it moves us down the mountain, down the mountain into the misdirected loves that are really a kind of hatred. When films are being produced that are clearly, at least if they start with having to do with lust, they have to do with a lot more than that. For men who have problems with women and want to see them humiliated, I think that captures a lot of the materials um, produced today. Um, and it's a danger that, that hits close to home for us, I think, precisely because it can seem so innocuous and under the surface. You can try to hide your, your porn addiction, consume it by yourself. Nobody has to know about it, right? Um, whereas if you engage in an extramarital affair, that's bound to come out and it causes all kinds of social scandal, all kinds of um, problems. And it does. I'm not trying to um, suggest that that isn't damaging or sinful. But when we're talking about the health of our soul, it's interesting to me that Dante says you're doing far better if that's your sin than if you're down here in a kind of self-love that works itself out as hatred. Yeah? What's the difference between lust and covetousness? I think they're very similar, actually. I think, I think lust is, is an interesting, it's an interesting word because it, um, it can be kind of a shorthand for just inordinate desire in general. We associate it with sex. But I think lust could really cover all three of the top um, vices here. You can lust after food. It's an inordinate desire for food and gluttony, right? You can lust after the goods of this world, you know, in, in greed. Um, and you can lust after sexual pleasure, obviously. Um, but I think it, it can be, it, covetousness usually has to do with what your neighbor has. And so it is, I think it can be a kind of lust for something that is not yours. But I think you're moving in the direction of envy there because you want to actually deprive your neighbor of a good. You're privileging your good above your neighbor's, but in a way where you're actually wanting something that's bad for your neighbor to take away a good that they have. And I think we can get in the frame of mind where we, where we think of, okay, if you have one vice, it's isolated from the other vices. And I don't think that's 
that's the case. I think there's often a, a lot of overlap. And I think kind of porn can, can be illustrative of that. What starts as lust for sex can take on layers. It, it can mean more than that, right? It can um, pull other vices in. Uh, I think it, as we have that, that downward climb down the mountain. Um, but I don't wanna, uh, I wanna give us plenty of time to discuss. I, I do wanna close on a couple of um, practical points. I don't wanna leave on a, on a dour note. There is hope if vice is your lust, no matter what form it takes. Um, first, know that you're not alone. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common. None of us has a sin that is only our sin. We, we always will find other people that, that struggle with the same thing, and they can be of great help to us um, in dealing with that. Don't try to deal with your sin alone. Bury one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I love that second clause, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Do you want to know how you should fulfill the law of Christ? By doing it with somebody else. Would you grow in virtue? Bring other people on board with you. And finally, don't, don't repress it. Don't try to pretend like it isn't a problem for you if it is. That's a surefire way to um, keep it around. To, to give it its, its power. But pay attention to how it works. When are you tempted by lust? What are the triggers? You know, does it come from a spot of, of loneliness, of, of fear, of boredom? Pay attention to that, because only as you understand it uh, can you learn how it operates and begin to um, combat it. That's about all I've got on the negative side of things. Bethany will be here next week to talk about chastity. You won't want to miss that. Um, no, seriously, it's, it's going to be better than this. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I do want to open it up for, for questions, comments. Yeah. No, and I, I, think, I think there is something to that, and I think um, certainly Dante and Augustine would agree with you, you know, that, that um, you notice that the, the three we have on the top of the mountain are lust, gluttony, and greed. They're all kind of rooted in the sort of bodiliness of our, of our being. We want to have sex, right? That involves the body. We want to eat. We've got to feed our body. And we want to amass the kinds of things that are going to protect our body on some level. And we need to, right? It's not always an unhealthy thing. But um, I think that those desires, they're, they're, they're like root directory, right? They're, they're baked into our being as, as bodily creatures. But they kind of dovetail with um, what, what Dante was, was pointing to in that we're created to desire, to love. And that's rooted in in our bodiliness too. Um, and that, that can get out of hand, and as it does, it affects 
the more spiritual sort of sins, you know, the, the less bodily related, whether it's power or, um, you know, the, the purest form is just the self, right? The all of who I am um, at the expense of all else. Yeah. Sure, yeah. There's like, and maybe Preston will talk about this next time, but there's like the positive cultivation of rightly ordered desires. Yes, yes. In order to not make it so that you're always just fighting your inordered desires, but that right. you really are temperate. No, yeah, thank you. Thank you for making that point. I think that's, um, that was in the background of what I was trying to say in, in the, well, the Augustine quote, right? The rightly ordered love. You're loving the right things, and that, that leads you in a direction that, I think to your point, makes it easier um, where you're not always fighting against what you want to do, but you're actually wanting to do what is good, <laughs> right? Right, right. But it's just observing how we are choosing to or what we worship, how we are choosing mm -hmm. to order our life. Mm -hmm. No, that's a that's a great point. I think it's it's right on. Yeah. Bruce. Yeah, so I, I think that's definitely apparent in, in the forms that, it, that we have it in our society, typified by pornography, right? But I think that's moving us down into some of these, these other vices, or it's, it's at least stacking that onto lust. I think you're right that lust always have, has some kind of exploitative character to it. Even when it involves another person. Right. Yep, no, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, that, that you're still privileging your, your own sexual desire above the humanity of another. And even if that person is on board, if it is an illicit um, sexual relationship, you're not doing that person any favors. It's not good for that person, even, even if they want to be a part of it, right? Um, so I, I, think, I think you're definitely right. But what is present in where Dante has lust, I think, is always another person, it seems. I, I don't think he had in mind um, this detached, dehumanized, like mediated form of, of sexual pleasure that pornography um, facilitates in the same way, yeah. Well, and I think what we have in our society too is this kind of feedback loop where our relationships with each other in real life 
take on that character of pornography, the exploitation, the objectification, <coughs> the, you know, the Tinder swipe right for whoever, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's everything is kind of, um, it feeds into that, right? It's just this, so it does seem worse. <laughs> then, then I think, you know, I, I think there was an Aquinas made a point of like, Even if you if if you're having sex with your wife, if it's right, if it's yeah. that like you just want to have sex and you would really just take anyone at that point, and it's just that your wife happens to be there, that's still lust. Right. E- even though today we would look at that and be like, well, you're just you know that's okay, that's in the bounds, right? But like Aquinas is saying, no, that's your heart is still you don't care who this person is, you just want to satisfy your own desire. Yeah. Well, I, I have to be honest. It's, it's very hard for me to um, navigate the Christian sexual ethic without the primacy of, of procreation. Um, and I know that as, as Protestants, we're not necessarily um, all on the same page there. But I do find um, the Catholic sexual ethic compelling on that front in that it, it helps navigate a lot, of, a lot of those murky waters. Because when sex is first and foremost about procreation, um, the rest of it kind of can make sense and, and hang off of that. Um, so I mean, that's where I go to, and, and uh, I, don't, I don't know um, of a better way to, to sort of uh, work through that. But um, does that sort of answer well, your question? Yeah, I think you're right that it's it's rooted in a kind of it's rooted in a kind of I determine who I am. I get to determine what kind of a person I am, what my gender is, you know, what what is going to be good for me to desire. And I think that is rooted in pride. That is a excessive um, privileging of self. Yeah.
Yep. Right, right. And as a young girl, too. Right. Yep. No, great point. Thanks for bringing that up. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so um, the, the piece that I quoted at the beginning from, from First Things was good. I, um, I relied on... on Dante's Purgatory. I, I think his his uh, exploration of of how love animates both virtue and vice is is really great. Um, actually, I can if 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 you're interested, I can put together a little compendium of the resources I, I used to put this together and, and send it to you. If you want to um, sync up afterwards, I'll get your email address and I can send you that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, come back next week. Hear about chastity. Anyone else? How are we doing? One minute? Okay. Exactly, exactly, yep, yep. That's one of the ways Augustine defines the neighbor is he, you know, he's talking about the objects in our world and, and our neighbor is a, is a major kind of object because they too can love and worship God, right? And, and so they deserve a different kind of treatment than everything else we encounter, right? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great point. All right, we'll wrap. Thank you all very much. <laughs> We'll see you next time. self to God. It's um, the object of our love is along the x-axis and the degree or intensity of love is on the y. It's a really interesting concept though. Because I'm working in law, I'm just seeing, you know, and it all started with it. There's a wonderful book on the Methodist Church.